You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Continuing our series, Clear Mysteries, which is a wonderful thing, you know, a mystery is not very clear. But uh, that's the whole point. Uh, Jesus speaks in ways that are um, a little indirect, not because he's trying to confuse us or uh, necessarily to uh, that conceal it ultimately, though sometimes kind of concealing things temporarily kind of piques our interest or draws us in or it prevents us from thinking that we kind of sit in judgment over and against what Jesus is saying, or over and against the text. So certainly the parables are an example of these clear mysteries where Jesus will tell a parable, but there'll be some part of the story that doesn't seem quite right. That's often the part of the story that's the most important. And then there are other times in which it's not Jesus' parables, but it's the way the Gospels themselves are telling us the stories about Jesus. It's as though the Gospel writers took their cues about how to share this truth from Jesus himself and his own methodology and how he shared the truth. So when we started this series about clear mysteries, uh, there were a number of parables in a row in Matthew's Gospel. The parable of the two sons, the parable of the vineyard, um, there's the parable of the wedding feast. But then, since then, uh, there's been these kind of series of questions. So we started this last week, we called it Good Faith Questions Part 1, and we're going to finish it this week, Good Faith Questions Part 2. Now, just in case you weren't here last week, we all know what a good faith question is, I'm going to assume, or I won't assume, I'll just talk a little bit about it. Um, a good faith question is one that the communication is transparent, it's clear, it's honest, Right? Uh, it's as opposed to a bad faith question. A bad faith question isn't trying to really communicate, but rather is just trying to kind of win the day. It's, it's rhetoric that's being used to kind of either win an argument or to kind of prop something up or maybe perhaps to tear something down. As I said last week, we tell students, those of us who are teachers, tell students that there's no such thing as a bad question, but that's a lie. There's all sorts of bad questions. In fact, the higher you go in your education, the more your questions matter. Once you get into your graduate work, everything is about asking a better research question, about refining your question and, and making sure you have just the right question. And so when these folks, whether it's the Pharisees and their disciples or the Herodians, that's who came last week when they asked the question, should we pay our taxes? That wasn't an honest question. No one actually wants to talk about taxes. I mean, if you're a CPA, forgive me. Um, most of us don't want to talk about taxes, right? There are two things they say polite adults don't talk about in public. That is, well, not almost, religion and politics, right? Those are the things you should stay away from, right? Because we're trying to live together. We're not trying to start a fight. So there's no, there's no need to get into a debate about the particulars of the faith or a debate, certainly a debate about politics. Unfortunately, the two things I like to talk about the most are religion and politics, which means <laughs> my poor wife can't take me anywhere. 
But I think it might have been the same with Jesus. Everywhere he went, he kind of got these questions. So last week, again, was the question, should we pay our taxes? And it was asked by two different groups. It was the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians. The disciples of the Pharisees would have wanted a hard no. We don't need to pay our taxes. We need to get rid of the Romans. The Herodians would want a kind of a qualified yes, right? And so the, the two have kind of come together to kind of catch Jesus in a conundrum. There is another kind of bad faith question that separates the reading from last week from the reading from this week. I'm not exactly sure why the lectionary jumps over it. But it's Sadducees this time. We didn't read this text. We're going to get to the text uh, that Donnie read to us in just a minute. But just before our focus text today... The Sadducees come to Jesus this time, so it's not, the, it's not the Pharisees, it's not the Herodians, and they ask him a question about if a man and a, and a, uh, a, man and a woman are married to each other and he dies, according to Jewish law, his brother should marry her, right? That's the way for her to be cared for, right? This would often happen, particularly in cultures where there had been a lot of conflict or war. A lot of men had gone off to war. A lot of them had died. Uh, a lot of the women then would not have access to either kind of um, giving birth or to um, just basic care. And so rules were made um, so that that could be cared for as a form of kind of social safety net. And so in the, in the hypothetical, the Sadducees say, well, if this man dies and his brother marries his wife, but what if he dies, the brother? And then another brother will have to marry her. But what if he dies? And now another brother has to marry her. And what if he dies? And another brother has to marry her. Well, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Well, obviously they seem to have suggested to him an impossible scenario. right? There's no way this one woman is going to be the wife of these five brothers. And so there's proof positive that there is no resurrection, right? They, they had caught him. But that's like, that's one of those conundrums, like if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one to hear it, does it make a sound? That's a funny question, right? Or if God is all-powerful, can God make a rock so big that God can't pick it up? These, these sound like conundrums, but they're really not. They're just kind of bad faith questions. Jesus responds to that one by saying, quoting the Torah, saying that um, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And believe it or not, I think the key to understanding that response is the present tense of am. Not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That, that God's self is always present with us. Not just in our present, but in our past and in our future. And then we come to this question. So now it's the Pharisees again. And one of the Pharisees, who happens to be an attorney, and I will resist telling any attorney jokes, uh, partially because Alan led us in our call to worship. <laughs> and I wanna, don't want don't to speak against him or his kind. Um, or, or partially because of Hannah, I don't, I don't want to tell lawyer jokes because of her. So <clears throat> the attorney kind of asked Jesus the question, what is the greatest commandment? Right? So we have all of these commandments, and should they all kind of just be treated equally? 
But believe it or not, I don't think this is, the, this is some great conundrum. I think the way that Jesus responds is pretty clear. That the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Which is a little bit of um, some editorial process there. Because in Deuteronomy, it says to love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And surely Jesus knew Deuteronomy, or maybe he knew a different tradition, right? A textual tradition, right? Maybe he didn't know the King James, he knew some other version. That was funnier than you laughed. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, so Deuteronomy says to love your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Uh, Matthew says that Jesus said to love your God with heart, soul, and mind. Mark, who has a similar um, question, says heart, soul, mind, and strength. He just throws it all in there, just in case. It's in Luke's gospel, uh, just a short sidebar here. It's in Luke's gospel where Jesus asked the question. Like the question isn't being asked of Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? And a lawyer, again, speaks up and says, love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Apparently Luke is following Mark's version. And then uh, the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And you think that the lawyer would have been okay there if he just left it. Right, this, this is, I always have students like this. They, they get the answer right, but then they can't leave it. They feel like there's something else they should bring up. And so in Luke's version of the story, the attorney kind of comes back at Jesus and says, Yes, but teacher, who is my neighbor? And Jesus responds with the parable of the prodigal son. No, excuse me, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, little inside joke there, Mikhail. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Right, so Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan is a response to who is my neighbor, which is the question that the attorney asked. But Matthew keeps it pretty simple here. The attorney asked Jesus this time, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. So as an academic, I might say that I am kind of glad that Jesus has talked about loving God with your mind. I love God with my mind. I love to read. I love to think. I, I think certainly part of the kind of American Christianity is that we think of our faith happening here, right? We have certain thoughts about God and we want to think rightly about God. And something about knowing God in our minds or loving God in our minds seems to resonate with us. But of course, it's not loving God just with our minds. It's loving God with our heart and soul. And I think the greater point here, not to kind of over, kind of parse the words of, of Jesus or the way in which the story is told in the Gospels, is that heart, soul, and mind, or heart, soul, mind, and strength are just various ways of talking about the whole self. Like Jesus isn't, somehow Matthew's version of the story here is not trying to exclude strength. Or even the Deuteronomy version that says, love God with your heart, soul, and strength is not trying to exclude mind, right? It just means yourself. Like the Westminster Catechism has 114 questions and answers. And I think I've told you this before, but in college I had to memorize all of them, all 114 questions and answers. But the first one is this. It's the only one I actually remember. <laughs> what is... What is, the, what is the primary purpose or what is the chief end of a human being? 
And that is to love God and to enjoy God forever. To love God and to enjoy God forever. Friends, I know life is hard. And I know our culture is filled with all certain levels of stress and anxiety. You know, we've been through a pandemic and we've had some economic struggles and the world is kind of feels like the fabric is kind of being torn between what's going on in Ukraine and what's going on between uh, the Israelis and Hamas. And sometimes it's easy for us to feel the kind of heaviness and the weight of all those things. But let me remind you this morning that the primary, the primary purpose of humans is to love God and to enjoy God. Like this is an enjoyable thing. This, this faith that we believe in. To kind of practice it. To embody it. To be a person of faith. Is to be a, a person filled with joy. A person who is enjoying God and God's presence and, and God's good gifts. And I wish we can all have just a bit more of that. Maybe a lot more of it. Maybe we could have so much of it so that it starts to affect the rest of the members of our family or our neighbors or our co-workers or the, even strangers. That naturally flowing out of us come these kind of random acts of kindness. And we can see ourselves kind of really embracing our identity. St. Augustine would say that all of life can be divided primarily into two things. Things of enjoyment and things of use. And he says one of the main things that we often get wrong is we'll confuse what's what. We'll try and make the enjoyable things useful and trying to make the useful things enjoyable. And he says differentiating between that's really quite important. And when it comes to God, I think it's really easy for us to just try and make God useful. That's why we often go to God when we have hard times, Right? I'm sick or I'm stressed or I'm anxious and I need God to come and deliver me. And so we're kind of only going to God in the midst of difficulties or in the midst of struggles. But if we regularly come to God, if every morning, right, every day, we count our blessings. Uh, this, this morning, someone, we were, we were praying before the service and, and uh, someone started to uh, a prayer with the steadfast love of the Lord, the, the mercies of the Lord are new every morning. I love that passage of Scripture. The mercies of the Lord are new every morning. There's an old uh, praise and chorus song. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning, new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. Great is thy faithfulness. I, you know, that comes from uh, Lamentations chapter 3. Like, we have a whole book in the Bible called moaning and groaning. Like limitations is a really nice word. But, but groaning, struggling, suffering, 
right? We have a whole book on it. And it's, it's written, you know, it's about Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, of course, is at that time when the exile's coming. And it's bad. It's, it's a bad time, right? The Babylonians are, have either on the way or they have come, depending on where you date the book. So, yeah, it's horrible. It's a horrible time. But it's a fairly short little book. So that's good. And, and right in the middle of it is this statement that, that the mercies of the Lord are new every morning. Here's, here's the clear mystery of this sermon. I have nothing new for you. I'm not going to tell you anything today that you don't already know. This is not some secret There's nothing that's been hidden from you from this. At the very center of the gospel is a story about the all-wonderful, loving God who has created us and loves us and wants to be with us and says, just be with me. The whole law is summed up in this one statement, to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and mind. To give yourself over to God. I would say to enjoy God. I know we quote it a lot. You might think we need to read more, right? So that we come up with some new quotes. But J.K. Chesterton, in his book Orthodoxy, right? Chesterton was one of C.S. Lewis's mentors. Talks about how Things in nature are so consistent, right? We, we know what a daisy is because a daisy looks like a daisy. And if you walked out into a field filled with daisies, there's all these daisies. And they're there kind of month after month. And then they're there year after year. And they're decade after decade and generation after generation. The daisies, the fields are filled with daisies. And Chesterton raises this question. He goes, has God never thought of another way to make a daisy? Or is God like a child that he just doesn't so easily get bored? Have any of you been with a toddler and had a lit a candle and let the toddler blow it out? Man, they love that. They'll just sit with you forever. Like you better have a lot of a lot of fuel in your lighter or a lot of matches if you're old school, right? So that you can just keep lighting that candle because that kid's going to blow it out and they're going to laugh and you're going to light it again and they're going to blow it out and they're going to laugh and it never seems to get old with them. Isn't it lovely how children are? How they're not so easily bored. How they're so full of life. And Chesterton asked this question. He goes, maybe God just really likes daisies and he never, he's like, He's like a kid. He never gets tired. He never gets bored of making them that way. So he just keeps on doing it. And then Chester says this. This is the quote. He says, we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. And so here's the lesson. That the whole law, not part of the law, not a few of the good ideas, Not the Ten Commandments, not the Beatitudes, but the whole law is summed up in this one statement, to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and mind. And then as he says, he kind of tags on there, the second is like the first, to love your neighbor as yourself. 
Because how else do we love God except in and through our neighbors? You know, beauty pageants, um, do we still have beauty pageants or are they, are they bygone? They still do those things? So, you know, beauty pageants, they used to ask the contestants what they'd want. And the most common answer was world peace. And then you wave like this. Which, of course, world peace is a wonderful thing to want, but, but, but that's not how world peace happens, right? It has to start here and here, and that's where world peace happens. Like, I can, I can say I love the world, but I can't hug the world. I can try. But I can love the person standing in front of me. Right? I can't acknowledge them. And Jesus says... When you do it unto others, you've done it unto me. And so we find God, the God we are called to love, in the face of the other. And I know it sounds like I'm, I'm saying the most basic Christian idea. That's because I'm saying the most basic Christian idea. <laughs> this is not super profound. This is simple. Love God and love people. And let that be what guides you in all things. And don't worry about following this little bit or that little bit. Later in this same chapter, this is in Matthew 23, right? Jesus gets in a bit of um, argument, if it's not too strong a term, with the Pharisees. And we might want to say that Matthew 23 has a pretty dark reception history. Like it got quoted a lot in certain places that then kind of um, justified a lot of negative actions towards Jews. So a lot of folks who kind of said it's all right to be anti-Semitic would quote uh, Matthew 23. It was a passage of scripture that was preached a lot in Germany in the 1920s and 30s. So even to bring it up, I think, particularly in our modern age, we need to kind of acknowledge the, the dark history of how some people have used it and resist that. But in resisting that kind of dark um, reception, history of it, we can't re resist the text as a whole and realize that this is Jesus, a Jewish a religious leader talking to other Jewish religious leaders about what they teach the people. So it's not about the people, it's about the leadership. And if we can keep that distinction, that would serve us well in the modern era as well, the difference between the leadership and the people. But what he does say to the leadership is, look, you think you're following every little law and you just think you're doing such a good job. You pay your tithes so well that you even tithe on the spices from your spice rack, right? You're like, oh, I got a little grill mate. I'm going to put this much over for the church and save it. I've got a little salt, right? I got a little thyme. I got a little cumin. I'm going to, you tithe on your spices, Jesus says, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law which is righteousness, justice, and peace. And mercy, excuse me. Righteousness, justice, and mercy. 
Now there's, that's what it looks like. If all the law is summed up in loving God and loving neighbor, what does it look like in public? It looks like righteousness, justice, and mercy. As one American philosopher said, love, or or tenderness, excuse me, tenderness is what love feels like in private. But justice is what love looks like in public. I'm going to say that again. Tenderness is what love feels like in private. But justice is what love looks like in public. Because loving God and, and, and particularly loving our neighbor doesn't just uh, exist in our minds. It has to exist in our hearts and then in the rest of our bodies. And then in our body, right? Our collective body. Jesus kind of finishes this kind of series of questions by finally asking a question of his own. So there have been three series of questions. Questions about paying taxes, questions about the, the guy, the poor lady whose husbands keep dying, and then finally this question about what's the greatest commandment. So finally, Jesus asks a question. And it, it's a bit of a conundrum too. I'm not going to say that Jesus is asking a bad faith question. I don't think that'd be the appropriate way to understand what's happening. But he is taking the, the, the process of question asking and he's kind of turning it a bit and he's kind of offering it back to them. And he's kind of showing them the way in which their conundrums will always fail them. You can't just read some passage of scripture and somehow use it against Jesus. <laughs> I mean, sometimes Christians will do that. You know, You'll, you'll quote Jesus, and then somebody else will quote some other passage of Scripture as if to say, well, it's, there it is. You, you can't do that. It's his word. It's his word. And so the question he asks is, how is it that David, if, if the Messiah is supposed to be a son of David, how is it that David, when he speaks of the Messiah, will call him Lord? And the answer is this is that the Messiah is not just the son of David. The Messiah is the son of God. And if the Messiah is the son of God, then we're going to have to lay all these other things down and realize that these were just signs that were pointing towards something else. And what they were pointing to was Jesus. I'll end with this. Paul will... I mean, Paul's writing earlier in terms of the literature, but obviously he's living later in terms of history after Jesus. But two different times, when Paul's writing to the Galatians and then later when Paul's writing to the Romans, he'll also take up this idea of trying to summarize all of the law, all of the Torah into a singular statement. And when he does so, he says, the whole law is summed up in this one word, He says, to love your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting. He doesn't even say the love God part. All he says is to love your neighbor as yourself. And I think what we can hear in the apostles' teaching is that when we love our neighbor, we'll realize we truly love our neighbor. 
will realize that that is an expression of loving our God. Just as Jesus had taught us. When you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.